Section eight of Lynn McLean by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four A Journey in Search of Christmas Part two. At the Denver station Lynn McLean passed through the shoutings and omnibuses, and came to the beginning of Seventeenth Street, where is the first saloon. A customer was ordering hot scotch and because he liked the smell and had not thought of the mixture for a number of years lynn took hot scotch coming out upon the pavement he looked across and saw a saloon opposite with brighter globes and windows more prosperous that should have been his choice lemon peel would undoubtedly be fresher over there and over he went at once to begin the whole thing properly in such frozen weather no drink could be more timely, and he sat to enjoy without haste its mellow fitness. Once again on the pavement he looked along the street toward uptown beneath the crisp cold electric lights, and three little bootblacks gathered where he stood and cried, Shine! Shine! at him. Remembering that you took the third turn to the right to get the best dinner in Denver, Lynn hit on the skillful plan of stopping at all hot scotches between. But the next occurred within a few yards, and it was across the street. This one being attained and appreciated, he found that he must cross back again or skip number four. At this rate, he would not be dining in time to see much of the theater, and he stopped to consider. It was a German place he had just quitted, and a huge light poured out on him from its window, which the proprietor's fatherland sentiment had made into a show. Lights shone among a well-set pine forest, where beery, jovial gnomes sat on roots, and reached upward to Santa Claus. He, grinning, fat and Teutonic, held in his right hand forever a foaming glass, and forever in his left a string of sausages that dangled down among the gnomes. With his American back to this, the cowpuncher, wearing the same serious, absent face he had not changed since he ran away from himself at Cheyenne, considered carefully the hot scotch question, and which side of the road to take and stick to while the little bootblacks found him once more and cried, Shine! Shine! monotonous as snowbirds. He settled to stay over here with the south side scotches, and the little one-note song reaching his attention, he suddenly shoved his foot at the nearest boy, who lightly sprang away. Dare you touch him! piped a snowbird dangerously. They were in short trousers, and the eldest enemy, it may be, was ten. "'Don't hit me,' said Mr. McLean. "'I'm innocent.' "'Well, you leave him be,' said one. "'What's he layin' to kick you for, Billy? Tain't your pop, is it?' "'Nah,' said Billy in scorn. "'Father never kicked me. Don't know who he is.' "'He's a special,' shrilled the leading bird sensationally. "'He's got a badge.' and he's going to arrest yer." Two of them hopped instantly to the safe middle of the street, and scattered with practiced strategy. But Billy stood his ground. "'Dare you to arrest me!' said he. 
"'What'll you give me not to?' inquired Lin, and he put his hands in his pockets, arms akimbo. "'Nothin'. I've done nothin', announced Billy firmly. But even in the last syllable his voice suddenly failed, a terror filled his eyes, and he too sped into the middle of the street. "'What's he claim you lifted?' inquired the leader with eagerness. "'Tell him you haven't been inside a store to-day. We can prove it.' They screamed to the special officer. "'Say,' said the slow-spoken Lin from the pavement, "'you're poor judges of a badge, you fellows.' His tone pleased them where they stood, wide apart from each other. Mr. McLean also remained stationary in the bluish illumination of the window. "'Why, if any policeman was caught wearin' this here,' said he, following his sprightly invention, "'he'd get arrested himself.' This struck them extremely. They began to draw together, Billy lingering the last. "'If it's your idea,' pursued Mr. McLean alluringly, as the three took cautious steps nearer the curb, that blue, clasped hands in a circle of red stars gives the bearer the right to put folks in the jug. Why, I'll get somebody else to black my boots for a dollar." The three made a swift rush, fell on simultaneous knees, and, clattering their boxes down, began to spit in an industrious circle. "'Easy!' wheedled Mr. McLean, and they looked up at him, staring and fascinated. "'Not having three feet,' said the cow-puncher, always grave and slow, "'I can only give two this here job.' "'He's got a big pistol and a belt,' exulted the leader, who had precociously felt beneath Lin's coat. "'You're a smart boy,' said Lin, considering him, "'and you find a man out right away.' Now you stand off and tell me all about myself while they fix the boots, and a dollar goes to the quickest through." Young Billy and his tow-headed competitor flattened down, each to a boot, with all their might, while the leader ruefully contemplated Mr. McLean. "'That's a Colt forty-five you've got,' ventured he. "'Right again. Some day, maybe, you'll be wearin' one of your own, if the angels don't pull you before you're ripe." "'I'm through,' sang out Towhead, rising in haste. Small Billy was struggling still, but leaped at that, the two heads bobbing to a level together, and Mr. McLean looked down, saw that the arrangement had not been a good one for the boots. "'Will you kindly referee,' said he forgivingly to the leader, and decide which of them smears is the awfulest. But the leader looked the other way and played upon a mouth-organ. "'Well, that saves me money,' said Mr. McLean, jingling his pocket. "'I guess you've both won.' He handed each of them a dollar. "'Now,' he continued, "'I just dasn't show these boots uptown. So this time it's a dollar for the best shine.' The two went palpitating at their brushes again, and the leader played his mouth-organ with brilliant unconcern. Lin, tall and brooding, leaned against the jutting sill of the window, a figure somehow plainly strange in town, while through the bright plate-glass Santa Claus, holding out his beer and sausages, 
perpetually beamed. Billy was laboring gallantly, but it was labor, the cowpuncher perceived, and Billy no seasoned expert. See here, said Lin, stooping, I'll show you how it's done. He's playing that tune cross-eyed enough to steer anybody crooked. There. Keep your blacking soft and work with a dry brush. Lemme, said Billy, I've got to learn. So he finished the boot his own way with wiry determination, breathing and repolishing. And this event was also adjudged a dead heat, with results gratifying to both parties. So here was their work done, and more money in their pockets than from all the other boots and shoes of this day. And Towhead and Billy did not wish for further trade, but to spend this handsome fortune as soon as might be. Yet they delayed in the brightness of the window, drawn by curiosity, near this new kind of man whose voice held them and whose remarks dropped them into constant uncertainty. Even the omitted leader had been unable to go away and nurse his pride alone. "'Is that a secret society?' inquired Towhead, lifting a finger at the badge. Mr. McLean nodded. "'Turrible,' said he. "'You're a Wells and Fargo detective,' asserted the leader. "'Play your harp,' said Lynn. "'Are you a desperado?' whispered Towhead. "'Oh, my,' observed Mr. McLean sadly. "'What has our Jack been readin?' "'He's a cattleman,' cried Billy. "'I seen his heels.' "'That's you,' said the discovered puncher, with approval. "'You'll do. "'But I bet you can't tell me what we wearers of this badge have sworn to do this night.' At this they craned their necks and glared at him. "'We are sworn—' "'Don't you jump now and give me away—' sworn to blow off three bootblacks to a dinner. Ah, pshaw! They backed away, bristling with distrust. That's the oath, fellas. You may as well make your minds up, for I have it to do. Dare ye to! Ah! And after dinner it's the opera house to see the children of Captain Kant. They screamed shrilly at him, keeping off beyond the curb. "'Ah! Uh, I can't waste my time on such smart boys,' said Mr. McLean, rising lazily to his full height from the window-sill. "'I am going somewhere to find boys that ain't so terrible quick stampeded by a roast turkey.' He began to lounge slowly away, serious as he had been throughout and they, stopping their noise short, swiftly picked up their boxes and followed him. Some change in the current of electricity that fed the window disturbed its sparkling light, so that Santa Claus, with his arms stretched out behind the departing cowpuncher, seemed to be smiling more broadly from the midst of his flickering brilliance. On their way to Turkey, the host and his guests exchanged but few remarks. He was full of good will, and threw off a comment or two that would have led to conversation under almost any circumstances save these. 
but the minds of the guests were too distracted by this whole state of things for them to be capable of more than keeping after mr mclean in silence at a wary interval and with their mouths during most of the journey open the badge the pistol their patron's talk and the unusual dollars wakened wide their bent for the unexpected their street affinity for the spur of the moment they believed slimly in the turkey part of it but what this man might do next to be there when he did it and not to be trapped kept their wits jumping deliciously so when they saw him stop they stopped instantly too ten feet out of reach this was denver's most civilized restaurant that one which mr mclean had remembered with foreign dishes and private rooms where he had promised himself among other things champagne mr mclean had never been inside it but heard a tale from a friend and now he caught a sudden sight of people among geraniums with plumes and white shirt-fronts very elegant it must have been several minutes that he stood contemplating the entrance and the luxurious couples who went in plum french he observed at length and then shucks in a key less confident while his guests ten feet away watched him narrowly they're eatin patty de parley voo in there he muttered and the three bootblacks came beside him say fellows said lin confidingly i wasn't raised good enough for them dude dishes what do you say i'm after a place where you can mention oyster stew without givin anybody a fit what do you say boys that lighted the divine spark of brotherhood ah you come along with us we'll take yer you don't want to go in there we'll show yer the boss place in market street we won't lose ya so shouting together in their shrill little city trebles they clustered about him and one pulled at his coat to start him he started obediently and walked in their charge they leading the way christmas is comin now sure said lin grinning to himself it ain't exactly what i figured on it was the first time he had laughed since cheyenne and he brushed a hand over his eyes that were dim with the new warmth in his heart believing at length in him and his turkey the alert street faces so suspicious of the unknown looked at him with ready intimacy as they went along and soon in the friendly desire to make him acquainted with denver the three were patronizing him only billy perhaps now and then stole at him a doubtful look the large country mouse listened solemnly to his three town mice who presently introduced him to the place in market street it was not boss precisely and denver knows better neighborhoods but the turkey and the oyster stew were there with ketchup and vegetables in season and several choices of pie here the country mouse became again efficient and to witness his liberal mastery of ordering and imagine his pocket and its wealth which they had heard and partly seen renewed in the guests a transient awe 
As they dined, however, and found the host as frankly ravenous as themselves, this reticence evaporated, and they all grew fluent with oaths and opinions. At one or two words, indeed, Mr. McLean stared, and had a slight sense of blushing. "'Have a cigarette?' said the leader over his pie. "'Thank you,' said Lynn. "'I won't smoke, if you'll excuse me.' He had devised a wholesome meal, with water to drink. "'Chewin's no good at meals,' continued the boy. "'Don't you use tobacco?' "'Once in a while.' The leader spat brightly. "'He ain't learned yet,' said he, slanting his elbows at Billy, and sliding a match over his rump. "'But beer now. I never seen anything in it.' He and Towhead soon left Billy and his callow profanities behind, and engaged in a town conversation that silenced him, and set him listening with all his admiring young might. Nor did Mr. McLean join in the talk but sat embarrassed by this knowledge, which seemed about as much as he knew himself. "'I'll be goshed,' he thought, if I'd caught on to half that when I was streaking around in short pants. Maybe they grow up quicker now.' But now the country mouse perceived Billy's eager and attentive apprenticeship. "'Hello, boys,' he said. "'That theatre's got a big start on us.' They had all forgotten he had said anything about theatre, and other topics left their impatient minds, while the country mouse paid the bill and asked to be guided to the opera house. "'This man here will look out for your blackin' and truck, and let you have it in the morning.' They were very late. The spectacle had advanced far into passages of the highest thrill, and Denver's eyes were riveted upon a ship and some icebergs. The party found its seats during several beautiful limelight effects, and that remarkable fly-buzzing of violins, which is pronounced so helpful in times of peril and sentiment. The children of Captain Grant had been tracking their father all over the equator and other scenic spots, and now the North Pole was about to impale them. The captain's youngest child, perceiving a hummock rushing at them with a sudden motion, loudly shouted, "'Sister, the ice is closing in!' And she replied chastely, "'Then let us pray.' It was a superb tableau. The ice split, and the sun rose and joggled at once to the zenith. The act-drop fell, and male Denver, wrung to its religious deeps, went out to the rum-shop. Of course, Mr. McLean and his party did not do this. The party had applauded exceedingly the defeat of the elements, and the leader, with Towhead, discussed the probable chances of the ship's getting farther south in the next act. Until lately, Billy's doubt of the cowpuncher had lingered, but during this intermission whatever had been holding out in him seemed won, and in his eyes, that he turned stealthily upon his unconscious quiet neighbor, shone the beginnings of hero-worship. "'Don't you think this is splendid?' said he. "'Splendid,' Lynn replied, a trifle remotely. 
Don't you like it when they all get balled up and get out that way? Hmm, said Lin. Don't you guess it's just girls, though, that do that? What, young fellow? Why, all that prayer saying and stuff. Well, I guess it must be. She said to do it when the ice scared her, and of course a man had to do what she wanted him. Sure. Well, do you believe they'd a done it if she hadn't been on that boat, and clung around and cried and everything, and made her friends feel bad? I hardly expect they would, replied the honest Lynn, and then, suddenly mindful of Billy, except there wasn't nothing else they could think of, he added, wishing to speak favorably of the custom. Why, that chunk of ice weren't so awful big anyhow. I'd a shoved her off with a pole, wouldn't you? Butted her like a ram, exclaimed Mr. McLean. Well, I don't say my prayers any more. I told Mr. Perkins I wasn't a-going to, and he—I think he's a flub-dub anyway." "'I'll bet he is,' said Lynn sympathetically. He was scarcely a prudent guardian. I told him straight, and he looked at me, and down he flops on his knees. And he made em all flop. But I told him I didn't care for them putting up any camp-meeting over me. And he says, "'I'll lick you,' and I says, "'Dare you to?' I told him mother kept a lickin' me for nothin', and I'd not pray for her, not on Sunday school or anywheres else. Do you pray much?" No, replied Lynn uneasily. There, I told him a man didn't, and he said then a man went to hell. You lie. Father ain't going to hell, I says, and you'd ought to heard the first class laugh right out loud, girls and boys and he was that mad. But I didn't care. I came here with fifty cents. You must have felt like a millionaire. Ah, uh, I felt all right. I bought papers and sold em and got more and saved, and got my box and blacking outfit. I weren't going to be licked by her just because she felt like it, and she feelin' like it most any time. Let me see your pistol. You wait, said Lynn. After the show is through, I'll put it on you. Will you? Honest? Belt and everything? Did you ever shoot a bear? Lord, lots. Honest? Silver tips? Silver tips? Cinnamon? Black? And I roped a cub once. Oh, I never shot a bear. You'd ought to try it. I'm a-goin' to. I'm a-goin' to camp out in the mountains. I'd like to see you when you camp. I'd like to camp with you. Mightn't I, sometime?" Billy had drawn nearer to Lin, and was looking up at him adoringly. You bet, said Lin, and though he did not, perhaps, entirely mean this, it was with a curiously softened face that he began to look at Billy. As with dogs and his horse, so always he played with what children he met, the few in his sagebrush world. But this was ceasing to be quite play for him, and his hand went to the boy's shoulder. Father took me camping with him once, the time mother was off. Father gets awful drunk, too. I've quit Laramie for good. 
Lin sat up, and his hand gripped the boy. "'Laramie!' said he, almost shouting it. "'Ya, ya, uh, is your name Lusk?' But the boy had shrunk from him instantly. "'You're not going to take me home?' he piteously wailed. "'Heaven and heavens!' murmured Lin McLean. "'So you're her kid!' He relaxed again down in his chair, his legs stretched their straight length below the chair in front. He was waked from his bewilderment by a brushing under him, and there was young Billy diving for escape to the aisle, like the cornered city mouse that he was. Lynn nipped that poor little attempt, and had the limp Billy seated inside again before the two in discussion beyond had seen anything. He had said not a word to the boy, and now watched his unhappy eyes seizing upon the various exits and dispositions of the theatre. Nor could he imagine anything to tell him that should restore the perished confidence. "'Why did you lead him off?' he asked himself unexpectedly, and found that he did not seem to know. But as he watched the restless and estranged runaway, he grew more and more sorrowful. I just hate him to think that of me, he reflected. The curtain rose, and he saw Billy make up his mind to wait until they should all be going out in the crowd. While the children of Captain Grant grew hotter and hotter upon their father's geographic trail, Lynn sat saying to himself a number of contradictions. He's nothing to me. What's any of them to me? Driven to bay by his bewilderment, he restated the facts of the past. Why, she'd deserted him, and Lusk, before she'd ever laid eyes on me. I needn't to bother myself. He wasn't never even my step-kid. The past, however, brought no guidance. Lord, what's the thing to do about this? If I had any home— This is a stinkin' world in some respects said Mr. McLean, aloud, unknowingly. The lady in the chair beneath which the cowpuncher had his legs nudged her husband. They took it for emotion over the sad fortune of Captain Grant, and their backs shook. Presently each turned and saw the singular man with untamed, wide-open eyes glowering at the stage, and both backs shook again. Once more his hand was laid on Billy. Say! The boy glanced at him and quickly away. Look at me and listen. Billy swervingly obeyed. I ain't after ya and never was. This here's your business, not mine. Are ya listenin' good? The boy made a nod, and Lynn proceeded, whispering, You've got no call to believe what I say to you. You've been lied to, I guess, pretty often. So I'll not stop your running and hidin', and I'll never give it away I saw you. But you keep doin' what you please. I'll just go now. I've saw all I want, but you and your friends stay with it till it quits. If you happen to wish to speak to me about that pistol or bears, you can come around to the Smith's Palace. 
That's the boss hotel here, ain't it? And if you don't come too late, I'll not be gone to bed. But this time of night I'm liable to get sleepy. Tell your friends good-bye for me, and be good to yourself. I've appreciated your company. End of chapter 4, part 2